Welcome back, everyone. This is episode three of the Dice Pirates podcast. I am your captain, Ian, joined by my bosun, Matt. How you doing, Matt? I'm not going to answer until you tell me what a bosun is because is it an insult? Did you like what? What happened just now? Um. Well, I was a little bit off put by your insubordination last episode, so I decided to demote you. You are now third in command, unfortunately. Bosun. Bosun. You may see it. It, it looks like it's pronounced Boatswain. Oh. You might have seen that word. Yeah, I have. It's pronounced bosun. I'm pretty sure it was made by the same guy who decided how baloney and colonel were pronounced. I want to be the boatswain. Can I be the boatswain? Sure. We'll see how that goes for you. Hi, I'm your boatswain, Matt. Welcome to the Dice Pirates. Man, I can't wait for next episode. Um, all right, so we are here to talk about dungeon crawlers. It's a genre we both enjoy. Matt especially considers this one of his favorite genres ever, I believe. So I'm excited for this, but first... Matt, we have a review. We have a review. Are people listening to this? You told me this, explicitly told me that no one would actually hear any of this. Unfortunately, some people have decided we're worth listening to, and they actually were kind enough to leave a review. We got a review by I'm Just Here for the Homebrew, and he says that he has really enjoyed listening to us. Um, He actually has a couple of his favorites that made our list of top 10 games, and he actually came away with a couple of new games to try as well. Oh, that's awesome. So thank you so much to anyone out there that's listened to this. In all seriousness, we are just so appreciative of the positive feedback that we've gotten so far. Uh, we started this really just uh, for fun because we love games and we love the game community. So if anybody out there is enjoying this, uh, we are excited for that and we'd love to hear from you. So please do continue to leave a review, maybe rate us, help us with that Apple podcast algorithm. And uh, if not, or even just send us a message on uh, the Dice Pirates Instagram account. So, uh, yeah, thanks to anyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. We're really glad that some people have found this enjoyable. Um, but I want to move on to what we've been playing. What have you been playing, Matt? Uh, well, we have been playing a lot of games recently, actually, Ian, and I wanted to talk about a game that we played together recently, which is Tyrants of the Underdark from Gale Force 9 Publisher. Uh, this is a game that comes to us from the designers of Lords of Waterdeep, a kind of a classic of the board game renaissance here in the late in the in the 2000s. And uh, Tyrants of the Underdark takes some of that same feel. It's a D&D themed uh, game of rival houses competing for power. But whereas Lords of Waterdeep was a worker placement game set in the city of Waterdeep, Tyrants of the Underdark takes the action to the Underdark, the land of the drow in D&D mythos. And it turns the game into a really unique combination of deck building and area control. So you have kind of that classic deck building uh, vibe of purchasing cards into your deck and building a hand of really powerful cards. But when you play cards, you're taking actions on a game board where you're trying to control spaces, trying to take over cities in the Underdark and eventually uh, be the most powerful house and control the most territory. It is a really fascinating game. I think it was kind of uh, a bit of an underrated game. Uh, I recall when this came out, it sort of, uh, I don't know if it would quite amount to a flop, but I really think the game's price point killed it. It was real expensive when it came out. It's a game with a lot of plastic. It has a lot of components. But they're just not great, actually, for what they were charging. It's not like it's full of miniature monsters and heroes. It's full of little plastic shield tokens that represent your uh, troops that you put out on locations. And the components are just not great, particularly not great for the price. But it's been a few years, and I think this game has come down a lot in price point, and you can probably pick it up for pretty 
you know cheap now on Amazon and I would highly recommend it I think uh, once you get past kind of the not great look of the game it's just a really fun mix of that deck building mechanic with uh, vying for territory on the board you have this great mechanic where you can drop spies into territory that your opponents control and then start slowly taking it over by like assassination and different moves that you can make it's just wonderfully uh, thematic game, and I had a blast uh, playing that a few weeks back. It's a really fun game. I think I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't call it a beginner game in any sense of the word, but I think it does have a place. And if you're trying to introduce somebody to a deck building game, you and they are interested in already playing other games, you could definitely introduce the deck building mechanics through this game because it abstracts them to a certain extent. You are doing it, but it takes the focus away from building your deck and into focusing on the board, trying to build up your area control. So it kind of obfuscates that aspect of the game, which I think is really neat. It's still a huge part of the game. You can do a lot of strategy around it, but if you just want to pick up cool looking cards and try to take over your part of the map, you can do that. Yeah, the deck building part of it is um, not as deep as some deck builders, even comparing it to like uh, a Star Realms, like a dedicated deck building game. Like it doesn't have you know, and maybe I just haven't played it enough, but it didn't seem to me that it had as much depth in the way the cards interplay. But it's all the cards impact what happens on the game board in an interesting way. And that's what shakes it up, because this is a hybrid of a board game and a card game. And so uh, learning where, to, figuring out where to place your troops, how to like maximize positioning on the board, because it's not just controlling these cities. You place your little troops down to control a city, but then you can control the roads that lead into it as kind of like a defensive maneuver. And once you get an area on lockdown, it's really hard for your opponents to come in, except for if they drop that spy in. And that's what totally shakes the game up. I think, I would go so far as to say the spies make this game. Because if it were really just a game of like conquering the territories and trying to play cards to like buy back and forth, it would get kind of grindy. But the fact that you can have an area totally on lockdown and your opponent can completely shake up your plans with a well-placed spy and then a card that uh, changes things for you is awesome. It's, it's a bit cutthroat. Uh, it is definitely a complex game to like kind of a lot of moving parts, but I, I really like it. I want to actually, I want to play that one again pretty soon. I would definitely enjoy going back and playing that one because there was a lot of strategy there. You can never actually be truly isolated because of the spy mechanic, so you have to pay attention to what everyone else is doing, and I really enjoy playing it. Yeah, it was good. All right, Ian, what you been playing recently? So I've actually been playing Viticulture lately. That's a game that we talked about recently, but I actually played it by myself. Um, I have the Viticulture Essential Edition, and I believe that most Viticultures will come with this, but the um, it comes with a deck called the Automa deck, which allows you to play single player against a computer opponent, you know, if you want to call it that. It's obviously not a computer, it's a deck, but it's actually really interesting because obviously, you know, We've talked about viticulture before. The idea is that you're trying to you're trying to grow grapes, you're trying to create wine in Italy, and you're trying to sell that wine. And it's a worker placement game where you take different actions across seasons. And what the single player version does is it creates an opponent for you that will um, arbitrarily take random actions away from you. So you cannot take those actions. You have to operate around the actions that you are given because it's not always going to be available to you. So you can't optimize everything. You also have a turn limit. You only have seven years worth to actually be able to finish the game, and you have to score 25 points by those seven years or you lose. So, And you can arbitrarily make that easier or harder for yourself, depending on if you want an easier game. You can be fewer points, but it definitely moves way faster than a traditional viticulture game 
because you have to constantly be looking to ramp your output up and the seven years is actually very short when you get into it. Yeah, that's really interesting. That puts a lot of more pressure on you to get your uh, engine going and start producing wine and selling. That really changes the game. Uh, I'm curious though, like how you felt about playing a solo game and if you play uh, many solo board games. So it actually was interesting because I expected it to feel more like a puzzle game because it was a single player game, but actually it didn't lose the feeling of viticulture through playing it. The way that it was done, the way the Automa worked actually was, it was well designed enough that I still felt like I was playing against somebody and it still felt like I had that drive to get there, but it didn't feel like I was, it didn't feel like I was the only person at the table. Yeah, I've actually played uh, several different solo board games. I've got a few in my collection that will play uh, single player, including a couple of the games we're going to talk about later tonight that are dungeon crawler uh, games. But um, I have actually found that I really enjoy the solo experience, and I think it's something that we should talk about maybe in a future episode. I remember the first time I tried it out with the game Elder Sign, uh, which is kind of a dice rolling uh, mix of like horror and Yahtzee. It's a really interesting game. Uh, I set that out on the table and you sit down to play it and you feel a little strange kind of playing a board game by yourself because you're used to obviously doing this with friends and having folks over, but there's something kind of zen about going through the game. You're also like way more focused on the game and for me on the narrative and the story and getting kind of immersed in it. And uh, it's really kind of relaxing to me to play a solo board game and it's it's challenging because not only are you taking your turns and and playing the game but you're also managing like every aspect of it and having to remember all the rules and it's uh it's like an interesting like mental exercise i think solo board gaming is kind of a fun um kind of a sub uh I'm not, not necessarily sub genre but it's kind of a, a fun like sidetrack to like the board gaming experience like taking these social games and turning them into single player uh, experiences and I know Stolmeyer has always uh, been good about including the automata uh, rule sets for their games to, to give you a solo uh, variant and so uh, that's really cool yeah no I think it's I think it's really fun I definitely want to talk about single player games at some point because you're right there is a zen like experience to it and there's something very tactile about getting to play a board game, you know, with components and cards in front of you as opposed to just playing something on the computer by yourself. Yeah, it's real different than playing uh, a, a video game because when you sit down, you can kind of zone out and play a video game because the game is running all the mechanics and the enemies and it's presenting all the choices to you and you just have the controller in your hand. But if you're going to sit down and play a solo dungeon crawler, well, you're running every part of that. The monsters, the combat... It's actually a much more, it, I say it's relaxing, but it's actually kind of a tough mental exercise because you are, you're the AI and the player and you're kind of doing it all. And I find it to be a really um, interesting kind of way to play games. There definitely is a lot to it. I don't want to get too much into that because I think we'll definitely cover that at a later point. So, um, but that does tie into our topic for this week, which is dungeon crawlers. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back talking about dungeon crawlers. All right, so welcome back to Dice Pirates, and we're going to get into our main topic today, which is something that's uh, near and dear to my heart. It is, uh, I would say, hands down, I think my favorite genre of board games, and that is dungeon crawlers. And so we uh, spent our first few episodes kind of uh, talking about a variety of games, and we thought it would be fun to do a deep dive into a single genre, take a look at the history of it, 
the important gains in the development of it and kind of what makes that genre unique. And so I wanted to start out with this one uh, because, well, like I said, I love them. Uh, what about you, Ian? How do you feel about dungeon crawlers? Is this a genre that you enjoy playing? Dungeon crawlers are a genre I really enjoy playing. My introduction to them was definitely through you. Most of the games I'd played previously were generally Euro-style games, worker placement, um, you know, much more strategical, heavy concepts to them. And I hadn't really played many dungeon crawlers, but within the first couple game nights we had together, you were bringing out like Runebound, which I think you could consider a dungeon crawler light of sorts. You had brought out Betrayal at the House on the Hill, which is another dungeon crawler light. You were really, you were really working us up to the big guns. So when you pulled out something like Massive Darkness, we'd be like, okay, I'm okay with this. Yeah, it, there's definitely like a, a grading on a curve when it comes to the complexity of some of these games in this genre. And um, I thought it'd be worth kind of taking a dive into. Um, it's probably worth giving a quick overview of kind of the big picture of this genre because. I find it to be really fascinating just as kind of a subgenre in uh, gaming. Um, for me, it's um, they're fascinating uh, because they have a really rich history in gaming. They're a really old genre that dates back to uh, the mid-70s, and they developed really alongside Dungeons & Dragons and tabletop role-playing, and they're kind of... Uh, sort of inextricable really from uh, that, uh, their, their sort of sister genre of role-playing games. Uh, but what fascinates me about them too is that they're, if you kind of pull back, and not to get too uh, philosophical here, but they're, they're even kind of a, a part of our like storytelling tradition. Uh, this trope of heroes uh, venturing forth into the darkness to fight monsters, to find treasure, is really as old as like stories. Um, you see the motif in, like, obviously in 20th century fantasy fiction, like uh, with Tolkien and the Mines of Moria, or Bilbo down in the caverns doing riddles in the dark with Golem. But uh, even before that, if you if you go back to some of the earliest stories, like the Minotaur in the Labyrinth, or Perseus going down into the cave to fight the the Medusa, the Gorgon, um, this idea of heroes descending into the darkness to fight monsters to uh, come out with treasure and magic is something that's just a part of our story. So this is a really, uh, this genre is really fascinating to me. I think that dungeon crawlers kind of get uh, a, a rap as maybe being like the beer and pretzels genre, like a little bit like lowbrow, like it, they're just a bunch of dice and they're a little bit silly. But I think if we kind of pull back and look at the whole thing, uh, I think they're actually, uh, there's some depth to this genre and why uh, people keep coming back to it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of nuance to it, and it is interesting you talking about how it did develop alongside of D&D because the one of the first true dungeon crawler games, Dungeon actually, was created by Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons itself. It really is inextricable from the role-playing game. Absolutely. Um, to get ready for this podcast, um, I actually spent more time looking at that older, like, 1970s era of uh, Dungeon Crawl board games than I ever had before. And before we get too deep into this, I actually want to give a quick shout-out to a board game geek uh, user named Sorger. Sorger is um, a uh, clearly a devoted and extremely knowledgeable fan of the Dungeon Crawl genre and has put together a fascinating uh, list on uh, BGG. If you go there and check it out, it's a chronological list of Dungeon Crawlers that really starts with uh, 
the games uh, with Dragon Magazine and then Dungeon the Board Game in 1975 and takes us all the way up to Gloomhaven and other modern games today. And it is fascinating to see how this genre developed and uh, was uh, really pleased to be able to correspond a little bit with Sorger on here and he had some good insight that I'll get into maybe in the episode. So just definitely want to thank him and recommend that you look up his list of uh, Dungeon Crawlers if you want to know more. But like Ian said, this genre really kicked off with the game Dungeon, which I have a copy of here, which was this kind of rudimentary uh, attempt to uh, take that Dungeons and Dragons experience and turn it into a board game. And it's neat to see how as early as like when Dungeons and Dragons was still very young, people were trying to turn it into a tactile experience that was a little more like a traditional board game. And so I think that points to one of the unique things about this genre is it's kind of a bridge between board gaming and role-playing, which are sort of two sides of a coin, you know, and, and I think players who have never tried out role-playing and aren't sure if that's for them, uh, these dungeon crawl games kind of represent a way to kind of dip your toe in that water, and that's actually how I ended up playing Dungeons and Dragons is through these types of games. Yeah, I think there's an interesting aspect as we talk further, and we'll get into this later on, where you look at the beginning of this genre, and it kind of was a distillation of the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons without a lot of the role playing and I think there's a tendency to for the genre to sort of steer back towards Dungeons and Dragons especially as you look towards more modern games that give you more legacy aspects and uh, strive to create more stories but we'll get to that later on um, I think it's it is important to look at like there were definitely a lot of the aspects of Dungeon Crawlers that were developed along the way that we really come to appreciate and have come to just expect from a Dungeon Crawler um, but what do you think the main concepts of a dungeon crawler would be? Yeah, I think there's a few characteristics. So what, yeah, and this is probably as good a point of any uh, this late in the episode to define what the heck is a dungeon crawler. Uh, essentially, a dungeon crawler is any game that's going to involve heroes exploring a dark and dangerous place. Uh, and there's going to be uh, several kind of key elements. Uh, these games can vary... Uh, slightly in terms of how they present it. Some games are played on a board, some games are played using modular pieces that you reveal slowly over time as you uh, push further into the location. Uh, these games are often in medieval fantasy settings, but they can be in space, they can be in haunted houses. Uh, so I really think the defining elements that bring all of them together are uh, four key things. I think exploration, that sense of constantly like pressing further into the unknown, opening doors and not knowing what's behind it, uh, turning the corner down a, down a passageway and not knowing what you're going to find. I think the sense of exploration is one of the things that sets this apart from any other type of a game. I think combat is a really important part of it. Uh, these games are action forward. There's monsters, there's danger that you've got to fight your way past. So I think some type of simulated combat, often with dice, is going to be key, but not always the dice, as we'll see. Uh, I think character development or growth is a part of it. Again, going back to its roots as kind of an offshoot of role-playing games, most of these games are going to involve you playing some type of classic hero character, a wizard, a fighter, a thief, a rogue, uh, and you usually have abilities and stats that are going to increase over the course of the game, uh, you, maybe through the acquisition of loots or experience points. And then finally, uh, the, the other defining characteristic is loot or treasure. I think finding something in the dungeon to make your character more powerful or to open up new opportunities for your character is key because that's really uh, kind of the reward. 
the gold underneath the dragon, you know. So exploration, combat, some type of character development or advancement, and then loot and treasure are really, I think, the four elements. And games that combine those four things into like the, uh, the secret sauce of a dungeon crawler, I think, can really be some of the most fun you'll have around the table. I agree. I think an aspect to throw in there as well is sort of the possibility of failure to a certain extent. Like one of the things that I think really sort of divides the idea behind a lot of like Euro games versus these games specifically is that you're not playing versus another person. And you know like when you're playing a work placement game, when you're playing a lot of these you know classic games, one person will be a winner, everybody else will lose. In this case, a lot of these games are a lot of these games are cooperative. You're working with other people and you have a mission that you need to succeed, whether it's clearing a dungeon, whether you're trying to do something within that dungeon. And a lot of these, like, they will be very well balanced. There's an idea that you shouldn't be losing, but they can be very difficult. And there is this idea, like, if a well-balanced dungeon crawler will make you feel like you just cheated death. You made it through by the skin of your teeth, and you were able to just eke out the win, and you really pulled off a heroic finish. Whether or not you were actually close to dying, I think a well-designed dungeon crawler is able to really make you feel like you did have that heroic journey. That's a really great point. I think a sense of danger is key, and maybe that should be a fifth uh, characteristic on my little list here, but I think it kind of is the, the flip side of exploration. So not really just a game about exploration, but exploration with a real sense of dread about it. I think a good dungeon crawler makes you anxious to flip over that next uh, tile that next or open the next door because you don't know what kind of trap or unknown thing is going to emerge from the darkness uh and you're right i think a good dungeon crawler is keeps your back against the wall and a lot of these games are hard uh some of the games i want to talk about later on my list of ones that i enjoy are brutal and you have to be comfortable with losing and that's something that a lot of people maybe aren't and that's why this genre isn't necessarily beloved by everyone um you have to be uh, comfortable not making it out of the dungeon alive because if it's not hard if it's not uh, tooth and nail then it's really kind of boring I mean you don't want to just like waltz through there and destroy all the obstacles with ease yeah they're absolutely while there is an aspect of the power fantasy of leveling up your character and you need to have a good balance between that it can't be too easy or there will be a certain aspect of there can be a loss of interest with the game you need to have some tension there towards the idea that you may not be able to complete your goal absolutely um, before we kind of get into some of the games in the genre that we like or that we have played, I kind of wanted to, to spend a little bit more time talking about the history of it. And I thought it'd be worth kind of looking back at my own kind of personal history with the genre. Like a lot of kids who grew up in like the 80s and 90s, uh, the game that I remember playing that introduced me to this is Hero Quest from Milton Bradley. Uh, still a game that a lot of people think in their minds of as like the ultimate board game. It is a true classic in the genre. It just blew our minds in the 80s as kids because it just we had never seen anything like it. A big box full of plastic miniatures and 3D like furniture and doors and things and when you saw a game of Heroes Quest uh, spread out and all set up it just sparked your imagination like nothing that you had ever seen before when you were a kid. And I had two encounters with that game when I was a kid. I had a cousin who had it and I had a friend uh, from my church who had it. And I remember in both cases, I don't think either time we ever actually were able to play the game by the rules. It was just a little too complex uh, for us at that time, but I remember us setting it up 
and just playing with the miniatures and exploring the world and like looking at all the little cards and components of it. So I actually don't know that I have like played Hero Quest per se, but I've played with Heroes Quest and it's stuck in my mind. Um, I think uh, it's probably worth talking about now that that game is uh, sort of uh, made the news here recently in board game world by coming back to market for the first time in ages. Uh, Hasbro has a Kickstarter or their in-house version of a Kickstarter going to uh, bring Heroes Quest back. And I will say that's exciting. I am contemplating picking it up. But the number one thing I was disappointed about when I saw that they brought it back is that they updated the art to a more contemporary animated style. And I love that original 80s D&D look of the art on the box. That original Heroes Quest box with that goofy looking beefy barbarian with his sword <laughs> is just, oh, that's, it's so good. And the way they drew the monsters and the art style on these old vintage uh, dungeon crawls is something that is just endlessly uh, enjoyable to me and completely fascinating. Yeah, I think there is, there's a lot of nostalgia attached to HeroQuest and people still love that game and still play it to this day. I think like I said, that was a lot of people's you know first real experience getting to hold all of these miniatures. You got to have all these aspects to it. And I think that's interesting, especially for people who you know grew up loving that genre even as it was developing. Like you look at, you know, earlier than that, still like in the late 70s during the time when that genre was beginning to become a, a thing, you had um, micro games. You had a lot of micro quests, which were published in various magazines. They would come out and they would give you a scenario that you could play. And it was kind of the beginning of the scenario book, as it were, that we have nowadays. But they would come out as small little games. They would have maybe a small map that you could play. And it was very theater of the mind, but it still gave people a taste of the dungeon crawl experience before you really got to have all of these elaborate designs and elaborate pieces. Yeah, that's something that really struck me when I was researching this and looking back at those pre-1980s dungeon crawl games is how kind of extravagant and even kind of like indulgent I think modern board gaming has become because uh, these early uh, dungeon crawl games from the 1970s had incredibly minimalistic components. like you said, they were sometimes just literally things you just pulled out of a magazine and with just very simple white paper, cardboard uh, cutouts that you would use to play. Um, a game that I was reading about, uh, researching this that I'd never heard of before was Death Maze and it's uh, sort of related semi-sequel, Citadel of Blood, which by the way, marvelous titles, great games. Uh, but these games were literally just piles of cardboard uh, chits, little like inch square bits of cardboard that you would lay out on the table and these were the first games to introduce the modular dungeon like where you would explore a room and then place down the next tile and the next tile and all the monsters were just these little tokens and the heroes were these little tokens and they look uh, so bare bones and simple but they're also weirdly evocative like the art on them is just this simple line art of goblins and creatures but it immediately sparks the imagination and you realize that these early games were all about like the investment that you put in as a player and kind of getting lost in your own imagination and your own stories. And then you compare some of these simple early games to like a massive darkness where there's a pile of plastic all over the table. And I almost wonder like have we lost some of the early charm of these games which were more about the stories you told and the things happening in your imagination versus all of the tactile experiences you're having on the table. Yeah, one of the aspects of that too is these larger games often require a dungeon master as well. One of the reasons we, when we were looking at our top games, we love um, Descent 
because it had an app um, that went with it that really took a lot of that away so you could just play it with friends and you didn't have to worry about that. Like when you look at HeroQuest, HeroQuest was one of those games that did bring back the idea of the DM. You needed somebody, because with all these rules, with all of these aspects, you needed somebody to come and actually monitor what was going on. And yeah, that person could also play as well, but once you begin to add all of this complexity on top of the game, you do need to have somebody who is there to keep track of the rules and make sure that things are on track. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things looking at how the genre evolved is the, the split between games that involved a game master-like figure who ran all the enemies and the, versus the player's characters or games that were totally co-op. And I kind of had it in my mind that the co-op stuff emerged you know, much later because I remembered, the, like you said, even HeroQuest in the 80s had a game master who ran it. But some of these very early games in the 70s, uh, Dungeon or uh, Dungeon Quest, like I said, Death Maze, Citadel of Blood, some of these were totally co-op. So the co-op mechanic has been with us for a really long time, and I actually think it's the better of the two. When I think about the dungeon crawl games that I really enjoy, I don't like one-to-one versus many dynamic. Um, one, because I really don't think the Overlord game master player is going to have as much fun there. It's not the same as being a DM in uh, a true session of D&D, because I, I like to... I, I also I DM in a group that uh, Ian here plays in, and I really enjoy being a DM in that setting because I feel like I'm collaborating with the players. I feel like we are telling a story together, and even though I'm trying to create obstacles that are hard, and I am playing as the villains in certain instances, I also feel like it's more of a collaborative group thing. It just isn't fun to me to be the buzzkill who is like literally trying to constantly defeat the players, and I think that's why the co-op dungeon crawlers are the ones that I tend to gravitate more. Those games are definitely, I think, a lot more enjoyable to me as well for all of the reasons you just said. Um, I also think that it's a nice break of, of sorts from a lot of the, you know, your games where there is just direct competition constantly. And also, I think there's too much going on when you're trying to combat your fellow players and the minions in the dungeon as well. Because then you're just, you're, you're at odds with everything. You're trying to beat everything. And those games have a place. They can be fun. But I think the true dungeon crawler and the ones that I think have stood the test of time are those generally cooperative games. And I think that the one versus many di- dynamic kind of undercuts what makes these games uh, so timeless as stories and as a motif. They should be a challenge, but you want the heroes to win. Like you, if I'm playing the the game master character and a one versus many, like it's going to be really hard for me to want to like beat the players because even though I'm fine if they escape by the skin of their teeth, the heroes should come out of the darkness. They should come out with a load of treasure. That's how the story is supposed to go. And it's the fact that these are like tropes and very familiar is kind of what makes them great and what makes it so fun to play. I agree. Um, I do have a question for you though because I know that we were talking about the aspects of what makes a dungeon crawler and I think it's interesting that all of those also apply to Dungeons and Dragons. So my question here is what differentiates a good dungeon crawler from Dungeons and Dragons? Should there be distinct differences and how far away can a dungeon crawler get before it becomes something else? Um, that's a really fascinating question. I think the difference really between role-playing and dungeon crawling is that a dungeon crawl is just one part of a role-playing game, and a dungeon crawl is really a deep dive into that, like, singular part of it. 
when you play uh, a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or whatever your tabletop you know game of choice is, uh, not all of the game necessarily takes place creeping through the darkness fighting. You uh, are going to have lots of times when you are in town and you're interacting with uh, other characters, when you are traveling on the road or you're undertaking a mission to infiltrate a party at a castle or you're... The, the possibilities are really endless and a large part of the game is uh, social encounters and dialogue and using uh, perception and intimidation to get information. Uh, I would say that when I've DM'd uh, uh, D&D games, dungeon crawling per se actually represents a, a surprisingly small part of playing. So I think the dungeon crawl board games kind of emerge because they're an opportunity to totally indulge in just that one particular fantasy without a lot of story. And I think that's good sometimes. Um, I love the storytelling and the narrative that comes out of role-playing games, but sometimes it's fun just to completely strip that away and do something that is really just focused on this one experience, exploring, facing the danger, and like overcoming it. And so there's no narrative like build-up, there's very little, uh, there's no social interaction component or like talking, it's just like, let's just fight. And that's part of why dungeon crawlers I think have a bad rap for being like maybe overly simple or being kind of a lowbrow thing but I actually think they're just an opportunity to really narrowly focus in on this one kind of timeless experience. I think that's a really good point there is an aspect of the moment to moment aspect that dungeon crawlers give you outside of a larger context. That leads to my next question though which is um we've seen the renaissance of board games and it's been amazing because you've had the ability to create larger board games as the audience of people playing tabletop games has grown you've had the ability to massively increase the size of games you can do because you can make more money doing it so one of the things we've gotten is we've gotten not just sequels to games but we've gotten legacy games where you will play a game and the game is so large because they've been able to put so much time into it it will let you come back time after time after time to full continue the same story. And one of the aspects of this that we've seen that has fit Dungeon Crawlers really well is the legacy game because you do get to create that story and it does it kind of veers back into the Dungeons and Dragons story. How does that tie with the idea of um, Dungeon Crawlers being a very like momentary thing when you do have that connected story? That is something that I think about when I'm trying to decide like what are my favorite dungeon crawl experiences um, I, there are times that I actually think I prefer uh, games that don't have a campaign just because there's something really uh, uh, there's something to be said for being able to sit down at the table and just have like a solitary experience so uh, for instance Massive Darkness this might be a good time to kind of start digging into some of the games Massive Darkness is a game that I kind of like love and hate there's a lot about that that game has I'm all over the place on my feelings about that game but one thing I do love about it is that you can just pick up the scenario book and pick a scenario and you just you finish it that night and you take a character through a whole journey from level one to level two three or four by the end of it and then you just kind of put that away and that's that's fun you get a whole complete arc we did a thing we plunged into the dungeon we fought the monsters, I gained some levels, I gained some treasure, and now I'm done with it. So the idea of like very like self-contained experiences is uh, really nice. But on the flip side, it can be cool to come back week after week and go on a longer journey with a few characters. And then you're right, it does kind of, at that point, the difference between 
a role-playing game and a dungeon crawl becomes very, very nebulous. And that's why I would argue that some legacy-style games that have dungeon crawl elements are really just role-playing games in a box. And that's kind of how I feel about Gloomhaven. But um, it, you know, we might get into that. Uh, we were gonna, we were going to save the discussion of Gloomhaven for the end, but I do think that game is so big in its scope that it almost stops being a dungeon crawl and it's become something else. Yeah, I think we will get into that at the end because that is a large topic for us to unpack, but I think you're right that to a certain extent the legacy aspect of the game can sort of dilute the dungeon crawl aspect of it, but not always. We played uh, we played the Dungeons & Dragons Temple of Elemental Evil. The thing I find interesting about that, especially if you're playing the campaign, is that there's not a lot of narrative to the campaign itself. There is some, you get flavor text, but it's a very mechanically driven, not overly simplistic, but there is a certain simplicity to the mechanics as you play, and the level up functions are very limited as well. So there's not really a lot of narrative tying things together, and you're not necessarily focused on creating your character. You're building up a character, but there's less emotional ties to the person that you have. And I think that is an example where a legacy game of sorts can fit within the dungeon crawl aspect because you do have that improvement of power, but that's not the focus. Yeah, I think that uh, Temple of Elemental Evil is an interesting uh, game to talk about in this context because I think that's one that actually doesn't benefit from its campaign mode. And that game, uh, well, first of all, to kind of pull back a little bit, that's one game in a kind of a large series of games called the Dungeons and Dragons Adventure System that Wizards of the Coast started publishing uh, a few years ago with Castle Ravenloft and then they've had a number of games in that series all the way up to they had a release I think in 2019 called the uh, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So there's a there's five or more games in this uh, genre and are in this series and they all kind of share this similar mechanic of exploring a dungeon using these modular tiles when you get to the edge of an unexplored space you know you put down another piece and it will either spawn monsters or deadly encounters. They're, they're really fun. I actually highly recommend this system. It was one of the first dungeon crawl games I've played and I've played more uh, complex ones, deeper ones, and there's something charming about this game which runs off just a single die. You just use one d20 for all your rolls. It's very easy to resolve all the different encounters quickly. Um, they're relatively affordable. You get a ton of plastic miniatures for, you know, under 70 bucks, sometimes under 50 bucks for some of the older ones, compared to something like Massive Darkness or even Gloomhaven. This is a it's a really affordable price point for this. But Temple of Elemental Evil is the first game in the series that introduced the idea of trying to do a campaign. All the rest of the games up to that point were one-off scenarios, like I was describing with Massive Darkness, and this is one that tried to introduce a narrative campaign. I just don't think it worked super well because I played the campaign with uh, another friend of ours, and we did maybe seven of the 12 scenarios and kind of got bored with it because you only level up once. You don't really acquire enough gear and enough stuff to advance. So you've got to have a little bit more depth to sustain a lot of playthroughs. I think that game is better when you just pick it up and play it and do a scenario and you're done. Uh, I will say I'm curious about the new game in the series, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, because I read that it now go, you now can level up to level four and it feels like there's a little bit more depth there, and um, that actually seems to be reasonably well-reviewed on BGG, so um, I would be curious to play that one. Yeah, the leveling up aspect is very uh, very interesting. A game that we played together that I think did well, and I think is actually interesting to talk about here, because it's not 
what you normally think of when you talk about a dungeon crawler is um, the Warhammer Quest card game. Now, you and I played a bunch of this together, and we were playing through the campaign, as it were, which is really just a selection of encounters that you progress through um, of potentially increasing difficulty that are based off of how well you did on the ones previous. And that's purely a card-driven game. You have your character with four different abilities. If you use your ability, you turn one over. You can't use it until you used all your other abilities. And the dungeon you're going through is a series of cards that you turn over. You're in that room. You have a mission to complete to get out of that room and monsters will show up as you play. So it's entirely card driven. There is no board. There is nothing to look at besides the monsters that are purely card based. That game is fascinating to me. Uh, Warhammer Quest adventure card game from Fantasy Flight uh, and then it has a sort of a sister game, Heroes of Tyranoth, which came out after uh, Fantasy Flight lost the Warhammer license and they couldn't publish that game anymore so they made one set in their own kind of in-house uh, fantasy universe of Tyranoth. But you're right, both those games are totally driven by card play. There's no board, there's no, none of these modular tiles, and yet both of those games manage to really convey all four of those elements that I think make a dungeon crawl, even exploration, which you wouldn't think you would do because you don't have a character piece that you're moving around, you don't have like, you know, tiles that you're unfolding, and yet there's still a sense of danger. You roll to explore, and on a success, you find items in the darkness, and there are there's this mechanic where there are uh, enemies that are in the shadows, they're face down, you know there's cards in play but you don't know what they are, and then at certain times they come out of the shadows and flip up and attack you, and sometimes an enemy, uh, the cards run off are really neat, uh, there's really neat AI on some of these cards, so like a, a goblin archer might shoot at you and then retreat back into the shadows, and uh, so you're moving them around the, the game zone in different ways. Uh, I really love both of those games. Um, they actually, uh, it's interesting talking about them in the context of this discussion because the Warhammer Quest game tried to have that campaign element, and I think it was generally successful. It was not a long campaign. It was the right length. It was pro I think there's less than 10 scenarios. I have to pull it down. Somebody uh, can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's less than 10 scenarios. So it doesn't wear out its welcome. And you level up your character just a few times over the course of it, adding new skills, acquiring items. There's even opportunities to find legendary items in the dungeons from time to time. Um, and so when you get to the end of the campaign, it actually, you, you feel like you had a, a good time with it. The Heroes of Tyranoth game, on the other hand, takes a totally different approach. There's no campaign, so you pick what scenario in the book sounds interesting to you, and they're all sorted by difficulty, which is handy. And so instead of playing a campaign, you actually level up your character a few times over the course of a single scenario. So you're re really quickly acquiring new skills and evolving. Um, I actually think both those games are just kind of like good at what they do in their own ways. The Heroes of Tyranoth game uh, gives you that fun of taking your character from like level one to uh, to a higher level over the course of a single session. The Warhammer Quest kind of gives you a mini campaign if you want to play for several weeks. They're both really good and both of those games play solo really, really well. Which I think is another big aspect to look at because there is, you're not always going to be able to find other people and if you love that feedback loop of fighting the monsters, having new ones come out at you, trying to win the encounter, that is a really good one to pick up. But it is interesting, like you were saying, it is such a different design than we normally have from dungeon crawlers and I think it really showed that you don't have to have the standard dungeon map and the die. Um, and I think that's interesting because, like we talked about with the Dungeons & Dragons tabletop game, 
really distilling everything down to a single die roll. We've seen more games lately that have really tried to diversify the way that you use your actions into other mechanics as well. Yeah, exactly. And in uh, and, and more you know, complex uh, combat is something you're starting to see more of. And so I think to actually to kind of like loop back to Massive Darkness for a minute, I think that's one of the things I think holds that game back in my mind. Massive Darkness is, um, uh, from Simon is on one hand, it's kind of the ultimate fantasy of a dungeon crawl game because it is an ocean of these incredible miniatures. And when you walk into a room and you attack an enemy, you never see just one enemy. It's always a pack, a horde of goblins or a horde of whatever. And there's all these plastic miniatures that come out of the table, and they're great. But that game gets really cumbersome over the course of several hours of play. And that's probably my biggest complaint against it, is that the scenarios kind of wear out their welcome. They're really fun for about two hours, and then at about three hours, which some of these scenarios run three hours plus, you're just really tired of like hauling 15 to 20 miniatures out every time you walk in a room. <laughs> and the other thing that makes it very complex is at the end of the game you're rolling such large numbers of dice. Uh, as you get more powerful in that game, you add dice to your pool when you make an attack. And the enemies also add dice to their pool as they get stronger and stronger. So by the end of the game, you're just chunking down a huge handful of dice and then having to do all this mental math to like figure out, did this attack even hit? Okay, I rolled like nine swords and then this guy rolled so many shields and then I have a bonus that gives me this oh, but then he has an ability that does that and then it takes you five minutes to figure out did I even hit that's where I go back to like the Dungeons and Dragons game where you just roll a d20 and you're like yep I hit that guy he's dead <laughs> and you can just move on with your life it definitely makes things a lot simpler when you have that um, I think this might be a good point to actually move into a discussion on Gloomhaven because I think we're definitely going to have a lot to say on that and one of the most interesting things that I think is important to talk about with that game is it removed dice from the equation whatsoever. There was no question of whether you're able to hit an AC. It was entirely based around a card mechanic. Absolutely. I mean, that is the that is the thing to me that separates Gloomhaven from everything else that we've talked about today. And it's really the thing that almost makes me want to say it's not really a dungeon crawler. And that's probably my hot take of the day. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely true because if I'm being honest, it hits on a surface level, all of the things that I just described. It has exploration, you're traipsing around in a space, opening doors, there's loot, you find loot, you find treasure. It has combat, certainly has combat, has, has great combat actually, and uh, it has character development over the course of many plays, and it does character development better than I think anything else we've talked about today. But at the same time, it just doesn't feel like a dungeon crawl to me. These games are so much about feel and like the secret sauce, you know? Dunge uh, Gloomhaven is a great game, but it feels like something totally new. I definitely agree. There's Playing Gloomhaven is a far different experience than playing something like Massive Darkness or Descent. And um, just to a recap for somebody who may not have played Gloomhaven before, uh, instead of having pure powers and having dice that you need to roll, Gloomhaven is entirely designed around your deck of cards. Each character has a list of abilities that they have um, and the abilities are all on different cards. The cards will have a um, generally a basic ability and an advanced ability. And the basic ability can be used, and when you use that card, you put it in your discard pile. If you use the advanced ability, that card is then discarded, and you no longer have that. So you can use the basic abilities as many times as you want. After you run out of cards in your hand, you shuffle your cards, you go back into your hand, but as you use advanced abilities, your cards begin, your hand begins to slowly dwindle, and you have fewer and fewer moves. So 
it turns from less of a um, action game into almost more of a hand management game where you have to constantly worry about what turns you have left and how long the dungeon may be. Yeah, it, the card play uh, driven combat in Gloomhaven is far and away the most fascinating thing about the game to me. When we first started playing it a couple of years ago and got into the campaign, um, I was immediately struck by how your dwindling hand of cards over the course of a round sort of simulates the experience of getting exhausted. You come into the dungeon or you come into whichever encounter you're playing and you've got all of these moves in front of you. You can throw knives, you've got a bow, you've got like all of these things you can do. And uh, slowly but surely though, you get worn down. You use this card, you can't use it again. It goes into your discard, it's gone. And by the end, you've got just a handful of options in front of you on how to deal with whatever danger has popped out of the darkness. So you really do feel like you're getting worn down, you're getting beat up by the scenario, and you do feel like you're escaping by the skin of your teeth, which is one of those things that I look for in a dungeon crawl. So I, uh, I do really like uh, Gloomhaven, and I had an initially a really favorable feeling of it. But after we played for, I don't know, gosh, we played that game for several months, uh, multiple sessions, after a while, I really started to miss those dice, man. Like. Throwing big handfuls of dice, or even just throwing a dice, just I just started to miss that part of it. And I don't know why that's so uh, married to the idea of a dungeon crawler in my mind. Uh, that it just uh, after a while, it stopped feeling like a dungeon crawler, and it started feeling like this weird uh, Euro game because I was spending more time sweating which cards I picked uh, and, and stressing out about my hand of cards than I was actually just enjoying the theme. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that in more recent games as Euro games have become so popular where we've seen dungeon crawlers borrow mechanics from that. And I think this is one of the most obvious ones in that it is a hand management game. And to a certain extent, yeah, I think it almost becomes a personal puzzle that you have to solve as you move through because you have to decide, do you use a powerful ability now that can clear this room but have nothing left to fight the final boss? And what if it goes on longer than you might expect? So it becomes far more strategical, not that these games haven't been full of strategy before, but I think it becomes, you know, more of a grant, like a, a very overarching strategy game than a dungeon crawler typically is. Yeah, it just is a, it is really just an odd game, and I don't 100% know what I, I feel about it now when I look back on it. I enjoyed it, I would play it again, but it just, uh, it was just an odd thing to me to, like, compare it to some of the other dungeon crawl games that I enjoyed. Um, when we would sit down to play Gloomhaven, the thing, I really love the atmosphere of the game. I love the, the city and road encounters that you would have and, and talking as a group about how you want to resolve those. I really liked the uh, secret objective that my character had, which drove me to like pursue this weird, uh, to try to like bring back some ancient uh, Cthulhu-like evil and ultimately caused my character to be turned into a totally different character. It was a, I don't want to give anything away for people that haven't played it, but I liked those story elements. It did feel closer to Dungeons & Dragons than anything else I've ever played as a quote-unquote board game. But then, anytime any scenario actually started, when we actually started playing, I didn't get that same sense of exploration. I didn't get that same sense of adventure. Once the game actually starts, it feels like a tactical combat game. Uh, more than a dungeon crawl. And I know that is an incredibly like subtle distinction, but I think there is a distinction there. No, I, I definitely agree. There is absolutely a distinction between that. But I think that's an interesting point to look at 
because as we've seen these games get bigger, as we've talked about before, there's an idea that I think we're m some games are moving away from the dungeon crawler genre into what you could almost call the tabletop RPG genre, where these games are based around this overarching world that you can move through. I think in Gloomhaven, the exploration is less of the dungeons themselves and more of the world that you are in. You are dropped in, you get to decide where to go. What's in those mountains on the edge of the map? So it's more RPG-like than it is a dungeon crawler, and it definitely does stray from a lot of the core concepts of Dungeon Crawlers, I think. It's really fascinating that we've kind of arrived at Gloomhaven, actually, uh, as a, I don't want to say as an industry, but as, as the, the genre has kind of arrived at Gloomhaven, because these games started as these kind of simplified versions of Dungeons & Dragons, and over the years we've gotten closer and closer to kind of recreating Dungeons & Dragons in a box, which is, I think, Gloomhaven is as close as anything to doing it. Uh, I think a game, though, that I keep coming back to that in some ways um, I take more joy in than Gloomhaven that that manages to give you some of that RPG-like feel while still being closer to what I consider to be a traditional dungeon crawler, uh, the game that I think does that the best to me is Descent. Uh, I keep coming back to that, uh, you know, and again, my history with that game is that I've never, I never played it in its original form, which was as a one versus many uh, game where one player was the overlord, all the other players were the heroes. Uh, everything I've read about that game makes me think that that feels uh, more like the kind of tactical skirmish combat game that I feel like maybe isn't really a quote-unquote dungeon crawler in a true sense. Uh, several years ago, uh, Fancy Flight released an app for iPhones and iPads, I think it's on Android too, that um, runs the game for you and takes you through a campaign over several sessions that tells a neat story, there's music and sound, the app controls the monsters and traps, it randomizes things for you. Interestingly, you can tell the app all the different uh, distinct expansions you own and it'll pull in different monsters and components based on what it knows you have in your collection. I think that's really fun. Uh, that is a really great way to experience that game because it gives you enough story it lets you take a character uh, over the course of several sessions and level them up. It gives you a little bit of that, of that RPG feel, but it keeps the dungeon crawl vibe in one key way. You don't have the whole map on the table when you start. You put down one tile, and then when you get to the edge, the app tells you what to place next and what to place next. And so the sense of like exploration is so fun. And the sense that like you're going to open the door and you have no idea if spiders or zombies or what's going to be behind it uh it's just really great and it's that dice driven combat it is it has a little bit of that massive darkness thing where as you acquire new gear you get more dice into your hand but it never gets as clunky and cumbersome as that there's a, a there's fewer dice involved it's just a really really good game and i'm excited to see what what fantasy flight uh, does with that license in the future definitely a game that gives you that power leveling and gives you that sense of you know improvement without making that as much of the focus and it does help you feel powerful as you move through it and I do really enjoy that yeah it uh, it came out recently that Fantasy Flight is coming out with a new game that is based around the Descent license um, there was a weird kind of leak this is fun to reach to read up on if you start googling but there was like a leak that happened because some books uh, appeared on Amazon. They were they're going to have some books, uh, some novelizations of this world, and they alluded to a game that wasn't out yet. And all of a sudden, people started realizing that oh my gosh, there's a new 
Descent type game coming sometime really soon from Fantasy Flight. They haven't uh, released any information about it, uh, but there's something coming, and I'm super excited to see what it is. I can't wait to uh, potentially get it or play and play it because I do think that of the modern uh, dungeon crawlers, that um, is uh, the one I like the most. I do want to before we close out, I want to throw back to one quick thing. We talked, we started out at the top. We talked a lot about these uh, 1970s era kind of early proto dungeon crawlers and if you want an experience that is a little bit like that obviously I've never played any of those but what I think those games are like if you want a, a game that you can buy now that's very much in that vein I highly recommend something called Four Against Darkness this is an adventure book that you can buy you get it off Amazon uh, you can buy it off their website which they would probably appreciate because they'd probably make more money you can even get it as just a PDF if you want it's a little bit more affordable that way and it is a solo play dungeon crawl that has no components you just literally need a pencil some graph paper and a six-sided die and this game uh, takes you through a whole dungeon journey that you just draw out in front of you uh, you roll a dice and it tells you uh, randomly what room you're in and you draw it on the grid uh, you roll for what you found in there and you resolve the combat or the encounter and then you keep exploring it's like a weird mix of like sudoku and dungeon crawling and uh, it's a really cool way to like experience a very old school very retro uh, uh dungeon experience and i highly recommend it anybody look it up i love that about this genre of games because i don't think there's really a genre that is more closely tied to itself than dungeon crawlers because even from the very beginning the very birth of this genre it has been there have been these core concepts that have been in the games and so you can go back to something that early and you can say this is still going to feel like what you're playing now there may be slight differences there's definitely design choices that have been made that are different now but it has a lot of it has maintained the same idea and the same identity for such a long time well i think it goes back to what we talked about at the top too like there's something timeless about these games because they are a part of this timeless uh narrative that we just keep telling Heroes in the Darkness, fighting evil, finding treasure and glory is just something that we keep coming back to as storytellers. And I think there's a reason why we keep playing these games. And I love the fact that this genre can be as big as games like Massive Darkness and Gloomhaven, which cost you over $100 and are full of miniatures and well-designed components and are fun to play, but you can also have fun in this exact same genre with a pencil and some paper. It's a really fascinating uh, uh, type of game. I think it's a rich and deep uh, genre that maybe gets overlooked uh, as being kind of lowbrow, but I think it's worth a uh, serious discussion. I'm glad we got to dig into it a little bit here today. Absolutely. I think we could talk about this for hours, but I think that's a really good way to sum up just dungeon crawlers and our feelings on them in general. Yeah, they're fun, man. <laughs> they really are. Um, but yeah, so that was the third episode of the Dice Pirates. Um, we hope you enjoyed this. We have really loved getting to see the response to this. Um, if you have enjoyed this, definitely like leave a review, rate us on Apple. That does help improve our visibility. It helps us know that people are listening. Um, we are actually, next week, we're going to be talking about a game that we played recently that we both really enjoyed and turned into an absolutely insane game. We're going to talk about Dune next week. Ooh, yeah, you talk about classics of the genre that came out of the, the 70s. Uh, Dune is uh, a amazing game. We played a brutal slugfest of it. I look forward to digging into that the next time we get together. 
I'm very excited about that as well. So we will be back next podcast talking about that. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.